Chapter Fifteen of Penrod. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Jonathan Burchard, April two thousand nine. Penrod by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Fifteen. The Two Families. Penrod entered the schoolroom Monday, picturesquely leaning upon a man's cane shortened to support a cripple approaching the age of twelve. He arrived about twenty minutes late, limping deeply, his brave young mouth drawn with pain, and the sensation he created must have been a solace to him, the only possible criticism of this entrance being that it was just a shade too heroic. Perhaps for that reason it failed to stagger Miss Spence, a woman so saturated with suspicion that she penalized Penrod for tardiness as promptly and as coldly as if he had been a mere ordinary unmutilated boy nor would she entertain any discussion of the justice of her ruling. It seemed almost that she feared to argue with him. However, the distraction of cane and limp remained to him, consolations which he protracted far into the week, until Thursday evening, in fact, when Mr. Schofield, observing from a window his son's pursuit of Duke round and round the backyard, confiscated the cane with the promise that it should not remain idle if he saw Penrod limping again. Thus, succeeding a depressing Friday, another Saturday brought the necessity for new adventions. It was a scented morning in apple-blossom time. At about ten of the clock, Penrod emerged hastily from the kitchen door. His pockets bulged abnormally. So did his cheeks, and he swallowed with difficulty. A threatening mop, wielded by a cook-like arm in a checkered sleeve, followed him through the doorway, and he was preceded by a small, hurried, wistful dog with a warm doughnut in his mouth. The kitchen door slammed petulantly, enclosing the sore voice of Della, whereupon Penrod and Duke seated themselves upon the pleasant sward and immediately consumed the spoils of their raid. From the cross-street which formed the side-boundary of the Schofield's ample yard came a jingle of harness and the cadence clatter of a pair of trotting horses, and Penrod, looking up, beheld the passing of a fat acquaintance, torpid amid the conservative splendors of a rather old-fashioned Victoria. This was Roderick Magsworth Bitts, Jr., a fellow sufferer at the Friday afternoon dancing class, but otherwise not often a companion, a home-sheltered lad, tutored privately and preserved against the coarsening influence of rude comradeship and miscellaneous information, heavily overgrown in all physical dimensions, virtuous and placid, this cloistered mutton was wholly uninteresting to Penrod Schofield. Nevertheless, Roderick Magsworth Bitts, Jr. was a personage on account of the importance of the Magsworth Bitts family. It was Penrod's destiny to increase Roderick's celebrity far, far beyond its present aristocratic limitations. The Magsworth Bitses were important because they were impressive. There was no other reason. And they were impressive because they believed themselves important. The adults of the family were impregnably formal. They dressed with reticent elegance and wore the same nose and the same expression, an expression which indicated that they know something exquisite and sacred which other people could never know. Other people, in their presence, were apt to feel mysteriously ignoble and to become secretly uneasy about ancestors, gloves, and pronunciation. The Magsworth Bitts' manner was withholding and reserved, though sometimes gracious, granting small smiles as great favors and giving off a chilling kind of preciousness. Naturally, when any citizen of the community did anything unconventional or improper, or made a mistake, or had a relative who went wrong, that citizen's first and worst fear was that the Magsworth Bitses would hear of it. In fact, this painful family had for years terrorized the community, though the community had never realized that it was terrorized, and invariably spoke of the family as the most charming circle in town. 
by common consent, Mrs. Roderick Magsworth Bitts officiated as the supreme model as well as critic-in-chief of morals and deportment for all the unlucky people prosperous enough to be elevated to her acquaintance. Magsworth was the important part of the name. Mrs. Roderick Magsworth Bitts was a Magsworth born herself, and the Magsworth crest decorated not only Mrs. Magsworth Bitts' notepaper, but was on the china, on the table linen, on the chimney pieces, on the opaque glass of the front door, on the Victoria, on the harness, though omitted from the garden hose and the lawnmower. Naturally, no sensible person dreamed of connecting that illustrious crest with the unfortunate and notorious Rena Magsworth, whose name had grown week by week into larger and larger type upon the front pages of newspapers, owing to the gradually increased public and official belief that she had poisoned a family of eight. However, the statement that no sensible person could have connected the Magsworth Bits family with the arsenical Rena takes no account of Penrod Schofield. Penrod never missed a murder, a hanging, or an electrocution in the newspapers. He knew almost as much about Rena Magsworth as her jurymen did, though they sat in a courtroom two hundred miles away, and he had it in mind, so frank as he was, to ask Roderick Magsworth Bitts, Jr., if the murderess happened to be a relative. The present encounter, being merely one of apathetic greeting, did not afford the opportunity. Penrod took off his cap, and Roderick, seated between his mother and one of his grown-up sisters, nodded sluggishly, but neither Mrs. Magsworth Bitts nor her daughter acknowledged the salutation of the boy in the yard. They disapproved of him as a person of little consequences, and that little bad. Snubbed, Penrod thoughtfully restored his cap to his head. A boy can be cut as effectually as a man, and this one was chilled to a low temperature. He wondered if they despised him because they had seen the last fragment of donut in his hand, then he had thought that perhaps it was Duke who had disgraced him. Duke was certainly no fashionable-looking dog. The resilient spirits of youth, however, presently revived, and discovering a spider upon one knee and a beetle simultaneously upon the other, Penrod forgot Mrs. Roderick Magsworth Bitts in the course of some experiments infringing upon the domain of Dr. Carell. Penrod's efforts, with the aid of a pin, to effect a transference of living organism were unsuccessful but he convinced himself forever that a spider cannot walk with beetle's legs. Della then enhanced zoological interest by depositing upon the back porch a large rat-trap from the cellar, the prison of four live rats awaiting execution. Penrod at once took possession, retiring to the empty stable, where he installed the rats in a small wooden box with a sheet of broken window-glass, held down by a brick-bat over the top. Thus the symptoms of their agitation, when the box was shaken or hammered upon, could be studied at leisure. Altogether, this Saturday was starting splendidly. After a time, the student's attention was withdrawn from his specimens by a peculiar smell, which, being followed up by a system of selective sniffing, proved to be an emanation leaking into the stable from the alley. He opened the back door. Across the alley was a cottage which a thrifty neighbor had built on the rear line of his lot and rented to Negroes and the fact that a negro family was now in process of moving in was manifested by the presence of a thin mule and a ramshackle wagon the latter laden with the semblance of a stove and a few other unpretentious household articles a very small darky boy stood near the mule in his hand was a rusty chain and at the end of the chain the delighted penrod perceived the source of the special smell he was tracing a large raccoon duke who had not shown the slightest interest in the rats 
set up a frantic barking and simulated a ravening assault upon the strange animal. It was only a bit of acting, however, for Duke was an old dog, had suffered much, and desired no unnecessary sorrow. Whereupon he confined his demonstrations to alarums and excursions, and presently sat down at a distance and expressed himself by intermittent threatenings in a quavering falsetto. "'What's that coon's name?' asked Penrod, intending no discourtesy. "'Aim Gobbo Mame,' said the small darky. "'What? Aim Gobbo Mame. What?' The small darky looked annoyed. "'Aim Gobbo Mame, I hell you,' he said impatiently. Penrod conceived that insult was intended. "'What's the matter of you?' he demanded, advancing. "'You get fresh with me, and I'll—' "'Hi-ya, white boy!' A colored youth of Penrod's own age appeared in the doorway of the cottage. "'You let that brother of mine alone. He ain't do nothing to you.' "'Well, why can't he answer?' "'He can't. He can't talk no better what he was talking. He tongue-tied.' "'Oh,' said Penrod, mollified. Then, obeying an impulse so universally aroused in the human breast under like circumstances that it has become equipped, he turned to the afflicted one. "'Talk some more.' he begged eagerly. "'I ho you akum aim gamo mame,' was the prompt response, in which a small ostentation was manifest. Unmistakable tokens of vanity had appeared upon the small, swart countenance. "'What's he mean?' asked Penrod, enchanted. "'He say he told you akum ain't got no name.' "'What's your name?' "'I'm name Herman.' "'What's his name?' Penrod pointed to the tongue-tied boy. "'Vermin!' what vermin was three of us boys in our family oldest name sherman nen kem me i'm herman nen come him he vermin sherman dead vermin he de littlest one you going to live here i'm hum done move him from out on a farm he pointed to the north with his right hand and penrod's eyes opened wide as they followed the gesture herman had no forefinger on that hand look there exclaimed penrod you haven't got any finger. I'm a map, said Vermin, with egregious pride. He done at, interpreted Herman, chuckling. Yes, sir, done chopper spang off long go. He's playing with an axe, and I lay him a finger on de seal and say, Vermin, chopper off. So Vermin, he chopper right off, spang down to de roots. Yes, sir. What for? Just for nothing. He homey who, remarked Vermin. Yes, sir, I told him to said Herman, and he chop her off, and ain't ary other one ever grown on where's the old one used to grow, no, sir. But what'd you tell him to do it for? Nothing. I has said it that way, and he just chop her off. Both brothers looked pleased and proud. Penrod's profound interest was flatteringly visible, a tribute to their unusualness. Hembao goy, suggested Verman eagerly. Ari, said Herman, our sister Queenie, she a growed-up woman. She got a goita. Got a what? Goita. Swellin' on her neck. Gray big swellin'. She happened Mammy move in row. You look in the front room window where she's sweepin', you can see it on her. Penrod looked in the window, and was rewarded by a fine view of Queenie's goiter. He had never before seen one, and only the lure of further conversation on the part of Vermin brought him from the window. Vermin say tell you about pappy exclaimed herman mammy and queenie move in town and go get de house all fix up before pappy get out 
Out of where? Jail. Pappy cut a man, and the police done kept him in jail ever since, Christmas time. But they're going to turn him loose again next week. What he cut the other man with? With a pitchfork. Penrod began to feel that a lifetime spent with this fascinating family were all too short. The brothers, glowing with amiability, were as enraptured as he. For the first time in their lives they moved in the rich glamour of sensationalism. Herman was a prodigal of gesture with his right hand, and Vermin, chuckling with delight, talked fluently, though somewhat consciously. They cheerfully agreed to keep the raccoon, already beginning to be mentioned as Arcoon by Penrod, in Mr. Schofield's empty stable and when the animal had been chained to the wall near the box of rats and, sus and supplied with a pan of fair water, they assented to their new friend's suggestion, inspired by a fine sense of the artistic harmonies, that the heretofore nameless pet be christened Sherman, in honor of their deceased relative. At this juncture was heard from the front yard the sound of that yodeling, which is the peculiar accomplishments of those whose voices have not changed. Penrod yodeled a response, and Mr. Samuel Williams appeared, a large bundle under his arm. "'Yay, Penrod!' was his greeting, casual enough from without, but, having entered, he stopped short and emitted a prodigious whistle. "'Yay!' he then shouted. "'Look at the coon!' "'I guess you better say, look at the coon,' Penrod returned proudly. "'There's a good deal more in him to look at, too. Talk some, Vermin.' Vermin complied. Sam was warmly interested. "'What did you say his name was?' he asked. "'Vermin.' "'How do you spell it?' "'V-E-R-M-A-N,' replied Penrod, having previously received this information from Herman. "'Oh,' said Sam. "'Point to something, Herman,' Penrod commanded, and Sam's excitement when Herman pointed was sufficient to the occasion. Penrod, the discoverer, continued his exploitation of the manifold wonders of the Sherman, Herman, and Vermin collection. With the air of a proprietor, he escorted Sam into the alley for a good look at Queenie, who seemed not to care for her increasing celebrity, and proceeded to a dramatic climax, the recital of the episode of the pitchfork and its consequences. The culminating effect was enormous, and could have but one possible result. The normal boy is always at least one-half Barnum. Let's get up a show! Penrod and Sam both claimed to have said it first, a question left unsettled in the ecstasies of a hurried preparation. The bundle under Sam's arm, brought with no definite purpose, proved to have been an inspiration. It consisted of broad sheets of light yellow wrapping paper, discarded by Sam's mother in her spring house-cleaning. There were half-filled cans and buckets of paint in the storeroom adjoining the carriage-house, and presently the side wall of the stable flamed information upon the passer-by from a great and spreading poster. Publicity, primal requisite of all theatrical and amphitheatrical enterprises thus provided, subsequent arrangements proceeded with a fury of energy which transformed the, the empty hayloft. True, it is impossible to say just what the hayloft was transformed into, but history warrantably clings to the statement that it was transformed. Duke and Sherman were secured to the rear wall at a considerable distance from each other, after an exhibition of reluctance on the part of Duke during which he displayed a nervous energy and agility almost miraculous in so small and middle-aged a dog. Benches were improvised for spectators. The rats were brought up. Finally, the rafters, the corn-crib, and hay-chute were ornamented with flags and strips of buntings from Sam Williams' attic, Sam returning from an excursion wearing an old silk hat and accompanied, on account of a rope, by a fine dachshund encountered on the highway. 
In the matter of personal decoration, paint was generously used, an interpretation of the spiral, inclining to whites and greens, becoming brilliantly effective upon the dark facial backgrounds of Herman and Vermin, while the countenances of Sam and Penrod were each supplied with black mustache and imperial, lacking which no professional showman can be esteemed conscientious. It was regrettably decided in council that no attempt be made to add Queenie to the list of exhibits, her brothers warmly declining to act as ambassadors in that cause. They were certain Queenie would not like the idea, they said, and Herman picturesquely described her activity on occasions when she had been annoyed by too much attention to her appearance. However, Penrod's disappointment was alleviated by an inspiration which came to him in a moment of pondering upon the dachshund, and the entire party went forth to add an enriching line to the poster. They found a group of seven, including two adults, already gathered in the street to read and admire this work. Schofield and Williams, big show. Admission, one cent or twenty pins. Museum of Curiosities, now going on. Sherman, Herman, and Vermin. Their fathers in jail stabbed a man with a pitchfork. Sherman, the wild animal captured in Africa. Herman, the one-fingered, tattooed wild man. Vermin, the savage, tattooed wild boy, talks only in his native languages. Do not fail to see Duke, the Indian dog, also the Michigan trained rats. A heated argument took place between Sam and Penrod, the point at issue being settled, finally, by the drawing of straws, whereupon Penrod, with pardonable self-importance, in the presence of an audience now increased to nine, slowly painted the words inspired by the dachshund. Important! Do not miss the South American dog part alligator! End of chapter 15